and girls and welcome to episode 181 of the motorcycle men podcast and another interview episode for your listening pleasure thank you for tuning in listening to the show and of course for listening to all of motorcycle man episodes we greatly appreciate that if you'd like to help out the show of course you can go to our website at motorcyclemen.us and you can click on that donate button for that one-time paypal donation Another way you can help us out is feedback. You go over to iTunes and give us a rating, good, bad, or indifferent. It doesn't matter. Uh, while you're at it, send us an email to motomenpc at gmail.com or go to our contacts page on the website and send us a note there. We read all of our email, and we may even comment on our next show. And for the best of motorcycle jeans, there's only one place you should be going, and that is Tobacco Motorwear Company. Dave and the crew over there, they make the best riding motorcycle jeans you will ever find. They will outperform whatever you've been wearing, and most brands available. Not only do they perform well, but they're also the best-looking and most comfortable selfie jeans you will ever wear or own. And for further protection and style, get yourself a California riding shirt. Comfortable, safe, and it looks absolutely stunning. I wear a pair of motorcycle jeans from Tobacco Motorwear and the California riding shirt. Each time I ride, they feel good, they look great, and they give me that extra security when riding that I want from my gear. All tobacco, motorwear gear is made here in the USA, so visit them at www.tobaccomotorwear.com and tell Dave and the guys over there that the Motorcycle Men sent you. And don't forget to use that coupon code MOTORCYCLEMEN when ordering. The Motorcycle Man Podcast is supporting David's Dream and Believe Cancer Foundation. The foundation was started by Stage 4 Cancer Survivor Dave Calderella to help other families who are struggling through the personal, emotional, physical, mental, and financial struggles of cancer. If you'd like to help out and be a part of something that actually makes a difference, donate today to David's Dream and Believe Cancer Foundation. You can go to davidsdreamandbelieve.org to donate. Links are also on the website and in the show notes, and you can help out there. Tonight, joining me is a very good old friend that I haven't spoken to in a very, very, very long time. Anyone who watches YouTube channels is very familiar with Del Boy's Garage. And joining me tonight is Dell. He's gonna we're gonna talk about some projects he has, what projects he's got coming up, and just generally some great motorcycle stuff. So enjoy. How are you, sir? Pretty good, sir. How are you? So good so good to see and hear from you again. Absolutely. It's been so long. I've worked it out recently. It must be almost four years at least since we last spoke. I know. It can't be that long. We've, lived, we've been at this address for three years in March. No, no, three years this month. Three years in January we moved here, and it was definitely not towards the end of the time at the other house. So definitely four years. No kidding. Approaching. That know. must have been in the first year I was doing the podcast because we're, we're uh, closing on our fourth year right now. Yeah. Because our four-year anniversary, our four-year anniversary is in March. Well, it was Woody. When was Woody? When did that? When did he leave your? That house? happened. Uh, that was two years ago. Right. Well, I think we had contact prior, but obviously we I've did. Been, yeah, I think that it is a long time anyway, and wow. it's just. Um, oh my god! Eighth. I think we just had the eighth anniversary of our first. Yes, video. you did. That's that was a big shock. You know, forever I've been telling myself, wow, we've been doing this six years now. Six years must be nearly seven. And you actually check, and there it is. Absolutely wow. incredible. That's a, that's a, you know, I had no idea it was, it's been that long. 
Christmas 2010. Um, I bought a camera from, um, we had a, it's gone now as an electrical supplier, cheap Chinese electrical stuff. Um, what was it called? I can't remember now. One of these, like a pound land for, for electrical stuff. This camera was about 10 pounds, which is a piece of rubbish. Uh, I got some blue tack and I stuck it to the windscreen of the car and went for a drive to work. <laughs> It was the most, it's the number one video, and I've left it there because it's so awful. But of course, <laughs> from the second one onwards, it got better. It was middle of the winter, it was a foggy ride to work, and I just, because my ride to work, we're allowed to lane split here. Yeah. Um, it's quite normal, well, if you're any good at it. And most people are pretty good. Car drivers are tuned into it. So I just thought I'd upload some because the reaction I was getting to filtering videos was astonishing. People telling me I need to die. You're going to die. Or you'll be in a jail with Bubba. <laughs> I, I didn't believe it, but of course in California, I believe you can. Um, now you're in California, you can. And I've been told uh, by um, police officers here in the state that I live, uh, I asked them about lane splitting and filtering here in New Jersey, and they said it would never, ever happen. They would never allow it. I can't, I can't imagine riding a bike in a busy place without being able to lane split. I don't get it. Well, you, you know, must just in, in the state that I live, uh, it's the most populated state in the United States. Uh, it's, a, it's the most densely populated. Yeah. And uh, the traffic here is absolutely miserable. And lane splitting, allowing us to lane split would be fantastic. But even if allowed by law, other drivers in four-wheeled vehicles or trucks would never allow it. Yeah, I get that. They would never allow it. Once in a blue moon, you will get a car driver who takes uh, exception to you being able to pass up the inside of traffic. Maybe it's jealousy or frustration, and they'll move across slightly to stop you. And in the extreme case, once in my life, a guy opened a door, but it was just as likely to be an accident because he was just an idiot and didn't look. But no. who knows? Why yeah. would you open traffic in it? But, but I must admit, you're right. You need a society that understands that it is completely lawful and normal. And sure. if you look at our roads for bikes in London, you think it's crazy. Then you look at roads in Thailand and the cities in India. <laughs> There's no rules there. There are no traffic rules there. Simply are none. It's like no. Russia, isn't it? You know, how much can you afford to bribe the police? You know, it's just incredible. When I when I've talked with guys like uh, Sam Manicom and um, Spencer Conway, and these guys are telling me that is you take your life in your hands when you go through these places. You know, yeah. but uh, getting just... back to your getting back to your videos real quick, uh, the first video of yours that I saw uh, of yours that you did many years ago, you were in a. Very small garage, very yeah. small. You had a little wood, wooden workbench behind you. It was all. I remember it all being all painted white. Yeah, it was, that was a lot. I have never seen your number one video, but I'm gonna have to go back and find it. If you look, when you open any channel, if you go to the videos section, you get the big checkerboard yeah. of, of the videos. If you look up in the right hand corner, it says um, oldest first or newest first. Okay. If you simply go for oldest first. Right at the top, it will give you the number one video that any channel's put up. And I love to do that with anybody who's had a channel for five or six years. Because um, invariably, they're first up. I'm going to have to do rough. that. <laughs> I, I must do that. I will definitely be I doing mean, it. The, actually, I think the, if the garage was painted white, that was garage number two. Garage number one was what we call a Marley concrete garage here. I'm not sure if you have the same thing. Uh, Marley, the com- Marley is a company that makes concrete 
fence posts um, and floor slabs for your patio and so on. Okay. Uh, what was always known as a Marley garage, they were supplied to local authorities and councils to build massive housing developments for the people, for, for, for social security and that sort of thing. So on council estates, everybody had a Marley garage and they were probably a foot wide by seven feet tall slab and they had holes pre-drilled and you bolted them together and it made a wall <laughs> and literally created this wall of, of concrete slabs about seven feet high. You put a, uh, a concrete floor down and yeah. a tin roof. So that was it. My first one was a Marley garage. The floor was so wet, it was just earth, just soil. <laughs> no. So we had to put a, we bought some thousand gauge polythene, polyplastic. Yeah. Uh, put a membrane in. Uh, some some wooden uh, beams, just some rafters, and then I put a sterling board. Floor. You know, sterling board. It's like wood shavings compressed into a board. Yeah, and here we call it press board. Press board, same stuff. Yeah. yeah. So we put literally a press board floor. Um, really, really rubbish. <laughs> Kept sticking tools in it and get getting bits of it stuck in tires. But it was our first garage. It was a property we rented, so I couldn't do much about it. Right. And we lived there. I think that was for for the first two years, and then we moved on. We had a white, two white garages, and then we're in the fourth one now, which is the amazing garage we're very lucky to have right at this point. Oh, that's a beautiful space you have right now. I'm, I'm very jealous. Well, just not enough of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you do, have, you do have things crammed in there. Sorry, sorry. I say you do have things crammed in there a bit. Oh, my goodness. Well, this is the thing. With England, we are blessed with the tiniest garages on planet Earth. They are literally... Normally, I mean, mine, mine is a large single garage, what you might call it. It's, it's uh, 10 feet wide by 20 feet long. That's big for a single car garage. Normally, you would have about eight and a half feet wide at the most, and the depth would be about 17, 18 feet. So a normal English small car. You'd never, if you had a Cadillac, just <laughs> <laughs> never no. the width, never line the length, you know. You right. Imagine, you'd probably get my garage into an Escalade, not the other way around. <laughs> My, actually, I'm building. Uh, I, I just finished building a garage of my own right now. It's ten feet by ten feet. Oh, cool! And well, I've just... it's 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 actually I have enough room in there to put a second bike. Right, that's when it, cool. When that's... it gets to that point, so that's where I'm going to be doing all my work on my heritage when the time comes. Well, mm. I mean, the thing is, we had this conversation with a friend of mine just recently. When you look at our space, our garage, or or our, our whatever you call it. I mean, in England, we use the word shed. Because and the Australians say shed as well. I think if I had a choice and I had some land, I would not build a unit. Everybody dreams of a big industrial unit, you know, a thousand square feet, yes. something, something like you know Russ Russ Mitchell's got with a machine area and so on. But of course, the problem with that is that everything's in the one space, and I have issues with dust and smoke and and contamination and paint contamination and so on. So if I had my personal choice, would be a row of 10 by 10 sheds there you go yeah so literally you have one to put say three or four bikes in which is your small collection then you have one with a lift for working on bikes with wrenches and, and torque wrenches and spanners and then you'd have one with your metal fabrication stuff in so all the sort all the metal dust and all the iron filings and all the oil that goes with that and of course you then have a separate one for paint where no oil must be near that this is the biggest problem i suffer i'm trying to do metal fabrication and lathe turning now that's that chucks oil everywhere and you get oil residue in the atmosphere if i try and paint the next day it reacts everywhere oh so, man i so didn't realize paint, you're doing that yeah i mean if you're trying to paint in the same place you're doing metal fabrication it is just a nightmare i spend more time cleaning than doing anything else 
So it's, you know, I'd be a good surgeon, you know. <laughs> I could make the space cleaner than you could believe. I, I think, I, you know, the funny thing is, is you can't really schedule your work then. You know, it's like you have to say, you have to kind of like define what you're going to do, what days or what weeks. You do. You have to order it. That's for sure. You yeah. have to put it in context. I mean, I've got some paint work to do. I've uh, scuffed up a load of chrome work at the moment. I've taken about 20 pieces of chrome off the Harley because they're going to be painted black. Yes, they were I saw really that. Bad, scuffed up and horrible, in terrible state. It's gonna that pile of chrome would have cost about five hundred pounds to have re-chromed, and yeah. I I could buy the new parts from Harley for that. So there's yeah. just no point in that. I'm not gonna waste that money. I don't like chrome too much anyway. Chrome should be, in my view, an accent, as I've said in the videos. It should be a highlight. It should never be a large area. Then you just look like <laughs> a Bangkok taxi. You know, when you <laughs> have you ever that, seen my bike? Well, I, I think it's okay on a good bike. <laughs> you look at Heritage. That's what I got. That's what I have. Yeah. A Heritage wears it well. A Tour Glide or an Ultra, they wear it well. But diners need to be painted. Yeah, you know, yes, a chrome exactly. Diner, it's all wrong. Soft tails lend themselves well. A Fat Boy, not so much. But a Deluxe, that jolly one needs chrome. Oh, absolutely. A Deluxe, deluxe without chrome is... Well, mind you, if you took... There, there's one custom job I'd love to do in the future is to take a Deluxe which lends itself very well to turn it into what looks like the same style as a 1936 knucklehead, which is zero chrome. Right. There was an early period uh, just after the Depression where Harley had no money. Nobody, well, in fact, let me correct, nobody had no money. And of course, <laughs> in that sense, chrome was a ridiculous commodity. Nobody could afford it. So right. you look at the bikes from that era, everything was painted black. Um, maybe they were copying Henry Ford. I don't know, you know, any color but black. You look at a 36 knucklehead, they are glorious. Oh, absolutely. Everything, you know, that's all black. So it does work, and you need to do the lot, everything. And any metal just needs to be a like a, an oily rag finish. Right. So that would be, I mean, with my primary cover on the diner, I can't scuff it up and paint it. It's too big and too large a flat area. It will get ripples on it. So it needs to go to an electroplater's and be reverse plated. You can do literally. that. Literally. Yeah, you can you can take it to them. They put it in with the right chemicals uh, and electric charge, and it literally dissolves the chrome surface and removes it. It drags the chrome off and it puts it back to bare aluminium, and then it's just an oily rag wipe over finish, which is what I want. So right. it, you can do all these things; they're just expensive. Yeah. But yeah, what we were saying was about ordering your work. I have probably got twenty pieces of chrome sat there ready to paint, but currently, I've just today I've done an eight-hour lathe project to create wheel spaces in stainless steel so splattering cooling oil everywhere that's, <laughs> that's in the atmosphere and i think if you look at it forensically yeah. the, the tiny micro dots of that oil will land 20 feet away from your lathe because you've got a heater blowing it's a blow heater so it physically keeps that oil residue airborne until you switch the heater off and then it lands on everything <laughs> oh my god i can imagine yeah so when you come to paint it you've got to wash 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 with thinners and get it all off but I'm going to leave it like you have to leave it two or three days, let everything settle and then come back and paint it. Because wow. if you don't give it time to settle, you paint it and then the oil settles on the wet paint and you get uh, crazy paving. Yeah. <laughs> and you don't have heat in that space either, do you? Well, I do. I, like I said, I use a blow heater. It's just right, that a, little portable thing, right? Yeah. That little that's tiny it. little yeah. one. Yeah. I have something similar to that in my shed because I just got done building this thing and I just ran all the wiring, put the lights in and all that. But it's not insulated. It's just thin wood walls. And I was working in there over this weekend, and it was 50 degrees Fahrenheit in, in there while I was working with my heater on. 
<laughs> but that's insane. I will hear worse than that is that I finished working at four o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. By six o'clock, the temperature outside had dropped thirty degrees. That's ridiculous. Yeah. So, and we went down to uh, seven degrees uh, that night. That's outrageous. <laughs> yeah. You must have snow there then. No, actually, we do not. The snowstorm. The snowstorm totally missed us. And yeah, so we just got a lot of cold weather, but we're getting, they keep threatening us with snow, but thankfully we don't get any. As long as I can get to the shed and work on the bike, I'm good. That's I think, do you know, I've always said that weather forecasters are like terrorists, aren't they? It's <laughs> never snow is the issue. It's the threat of snow yeah. that causes us to restrict our lives. Right. Can you imagine, someone says it's going to be minus four, we're going to have a blizzard tomorrow. You will make your, your tomorrow decisions before you go to bed. Yeah, I, no, it's funny. We we called it we called it the 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 big no storm that we had. That's, yeah, that's, <laughs> but you have snow days there, don't you? We can't live. We really don't have. Well, no. Time. See, here's the thing. Well, it depends upon where you work and what you do for a living. For me, uh, if we have this huge snowstorm, and they, yeah, they might they might declare a state of emergency and close the roads and whatever. But I work from home. Right. So I really so don't you, get a day off. <laughs> not really, no. You have to go. You have to go to a cafe and do your blog instead. Got to do something different. <laughs> something, yeah. Uh, so you, I've been, I've been watching your fighter series, your your Street Fighter series. Right, thank you. Did right. you, did you think it was going to take that long to do it? <laughs> no, no. Two years and nine months. That's insane, isn't it? I you mean, thought it, you were going to get that done in six months, and you were going to be out of there, didn't you? I, my, my very good friend Dave Dyson said to me, hundred hours," and I said, "You're ridiculous. Fifty at the most, seventy-five if I take my time." Uh, how many hours was it? Eight hundred and something. I think. It how was many? Just, it nearly eight hundred hours. I think it was just insane. But the problem was, I learned a very valuable lesson, and that is never embark on an open-ended project with no motivation to get it finished because it doesn't it then becomes simply a journey that never ends it becomes a loop and i proved that to myself where the tail unit was done i was happy with it yeah. and two days that because i didn't matter to get it right i thought oh, this might look good and this tail oh, i like that i'll go with that for now <laughs> and then you look at it three weeks later and think no that's shit i think they're so rubbish i'm gonna throw it away and in that sense you do. You just put it on the shelf and you come up with something else. And you should have just thought harder about it. So a lack of planning, that was one of the problems. I didn't plan the build in stages. I didn't set a minimum amount of work or maximum amount of work. It was simply an open-ended project of open-ended work. And it's a recipe for disaster. Uh, but I'm happy in a way because I learned an enormous amount from that project. Um, welding improved intensely. My fabrication skills improved purely through practice. I learned a lot from the viewers. Um, we're blessed with a wonderful viewer pack. They'll they'll pick you up the minute you do something wrong. Uh, and they'll do it robustly. People are always eager to point out your mistakes. Oh, very eager. Yeah, far more eager than they are to tell you it's a good job. But I think that's a great thing. And if you can look past what you might call the trolling and you can look past the disrespectful people and, and take what they say as actually a lesson you can learn, then you can actually turn it to your benefit. I used to follow Milo Garage. You may have heard of Milo was in California, incredibly laid back guy, painting genius. And his latter retirement years were spent in his home garage, which was tiny by your standards and just fixing scooters for a local bike dealer. Mm -hmm. So that's all he used to do. And 
just his lessons. He was a moral, he was a street philosopher, you know, and the guy, his attitude was the same. Always make sure you plan something, finish it and move on. And I learned a lot from that. But when you do it, as I've said, an open-ended project with no target, with no specific direction, you just keep changing things all the time because you'll always think you could have done something better. Well, this, this reminds me of something. In the, in the music business, when we're doing music recording, uh, when it comes to mixing, getting your final mix, there's, there's a saying that goes, when it comes to m- mixing, you're never done. You just yeah. give up. <laughs> Absolutely the same. Absolutely. Now, because I'm watching, I'm watching this video, I'm watching your videos, and now it comes to what appears to be the final episode of the Street Fighter build. But in the back of my mind, I'm going, he's not really done. I think no. he's just given up. <laughs> no. no, no, no. It is, it is finished. Um, it is. Come on, admit there's more you'd like to do. The only thing I want to do is to wrap it and. I did hold off. My very good buddy, Mackie, who painted the, the turbo Yamaha with that amazing flame, the real flame paint job. Okay. That guy's a genius uh, in freehand airbrush paintwork. Um, he did a fantastic job on that, and it was very good. The bike sold for a really good price, and I was able to buy this Harley with it. So that worked very well. But to get him back to do something similar on the Street Fighter build would be counterproductive. I don't want to do anything twice on my channel. On everything that I do to be a journey of discovery for me and the viewers, something new and interesting, because otherwise you're just repeating the same thing. It's just the same old story. You're like you're watching American Chopper, you know, building the same chopper, just different mm-hmm. colors. You know what? Co- I have not watched one episode of it yet. Really? <laughs> I have not. Yeah, <laughs> and, I, and I promised myself I would, but I haven't seen it. No, I do have no. one question about, your, about the Street Fighter. Go, go on. What is up with the seat? Nothing. Yeah, it's that's ready. what that's what I mean. <laughs> there is no seat. That is it. No, no padding, no nothing. Nothing at the moment. Now I have I just finished my point was with the paint. Um, I was recently contacted regarding the Harley build by a guy who does uh, vinyl wrap on cars and right. supercars, Lamborghinis and whatnot, and also he does stunt bikes for the stunt guys, and they love it because every season they completely do a new livery for all their stunt bikes. And he said, to wrap it, we can do anything. The sky's the limit. If we can print it on a screen, we mm-hmm. can lay it on some vinyl, and it's yours. They can even do texture. They can actually do a texturized vinyl. Wow. So that, he said, look, honestly, think as crazy as you can, times it by 10, and you still haven't scratched the surface. Come and see us. So this is an open invite. We're going to take the cameras. I'm going to take the Harley body work up and show this guy. But I'm thinking what I might do is when it's done, yeah. is get the Street Fighter, revisit the Street Fighter. I did say in the final video that this is my bike now. It's a keeper and you will see it again. And I think that's when you'll see it again. I'll take all that lovely swoopy body work, including my seat, and I'll get, it, <laughs> I'll get them to wrap it in something crazy. And I think that's where we're going to go with that in the end. As far as the seat's concerned, I know a guy who does leather. He does hand leather tooling. Mm-hmm. Um, I've given him a design. I've given him a template, and he's doing it in his own time. He's a very busy chap, so in a few months, hopefully, he'll turn me out a seat pad, just a leather seat pad, and that's literally going to be stuck straight onto the body with no padding as such. Now, with that, with that, with that bike, uh, what do you think was the percentage of like uh, mechanical versus bodywork versus painting? that you did on that? Because it seemed to me like you did far more body work than you actually did any mechanical work to it. Um, I took longer over the paint, the body work, but I think in terms of how much of it there is, 
Um, you can summarize it by saying, I took a spare fuel tank, cut the bottom out, spun it upside down and made a belly pan. Um, I took a Harley Sportster tank, cut the bottom out, spun it on its nose and hung it over the front forks as a bearing. And then I wasted probably two or three kilos of clay and fiberglass and <laughs> silliness. And I made a tail unit that I think fits in. But that's it. That is the bodywork. Um, the front fender was uh, a spare trailer. It was a, it was a fender, you know, like on a, on a trailer, you have two right. fenders over the side. One of those I bought from a flea market thing, like a bring and buy sale uh, for £10. And I chopped it up and made a front fender from that. That's it. But as far as the mechanical work, that has to be the most fun because uh, I upgraded all the brakes, right. all the suspension, um, all of the bearings, uh, all the wheel bearings, headstock bearings, swing arm bushes and bearings, all of the rubber seals, mm -hmm. and, every, and of course the fork seals, fork bushes. There was an awful lot of mechanical work that was early on. So if you watch the project series, if you could, if you have enough life left in your, <laughs> your 800 your hours worth, <laughs> to bother watching it all, right back two and a half years ago, there were videos that were mostly focused on mechanical. So I'd say if you look at it in time, the first third of that two and a half years, the first year was mechanical. The second year, I started on the bodywork and creating the bodywork. And the third, the final year, that last nine months, I remade the tail. So that was yet more bodywork and then finally put the whole thing together. It is just painted satin black at the moment. I yeah. wanted a uniform all over black so I can stand back. But that's not the finish. Now that I've got these crazy vinyl wrap guys <laughs> keen to do something for us, I've got to take that up. And it's got to be completely ridiculous. You know, something like, I don't know, we'll do... Um, Van Gogh on it or something, you know, which is because if they can print it, they can stick it on. Or something like a Dali. Can you imagine that? A Salvador <laughs> Dali. The clocks, the, the melting clocks. Yeah. yeah. Uh, be once honest. I saw um, Monty Python, you know, the, those fantastic cartoons uh, on a Buell, you know, that sort of thing. Oh, that's um, awesome. Those Python cartoons. It's got to be something completely stupid. Or some Disney or something crazy. No, like don't that. do anything Disney. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You know, something you know, something steampunk might be cool on that. I run bike for steampunk in my personal view. Um, it's a futuristic street fighter. Street fighters are a, are a completely dead genre now. They they kind of died about five six years ago. Finally, you know, the death rattle started five years. <laughs> before that. Just in time they, for Harley to bring out theirs. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, that's it. They hung on and hung on while the Germans refused to let go to Street Fighters, and eventually they let go of it too. And now the only idiots like me that have got Street Fighter bikes. But if you go back, in my view, a Street Fighter bike is the original cafe racer because you're taking a step, right, yeah. you're trimming off the excess, you're making it a bit more brutal and businesslike and simple. Yeah. And that is the simple genre. But that's the same as a bother, isn't it? Uh, I don't know about... Well, look at the story. Let, let's see where the bobber came from. If we look at 1945, you know, the old cliched stories, guys come home from the Navy or from right. the war, they buy an ex-war department Harley, um, the, the hinged rear fender falls off or, or they just take it off uh, and they don't want one on the front because it loads up with mud, they lift the footboards up so they go around corners, all of those stories that tell us where the bobber came from. But the bobber began around probably a WLA or something like that. That yeah. was where the original bobbers came from. And of course, the advent of the Sportster in 57, mm -hmm. and the Sportster bobber came along. Today, we have the 48, which I think is probably the closest blood relation to the original bobber that you'll ever get. Actually, because, I would think it would be, uh, actually, I lean towards more towards the Slim. Possibly, yeah, I'll give you that. 
definitely. I think they all mix. Of course, people say the Fat Bob as well, um, which, mm. of course, is a big, chunky thing. But then I've always thought the Fat Bob is a bike that Harley are, are directing at Japanese cruiser bike owners, yeah. trying to tempt them across to the dark side. And, and it does work. Um, once ridden, never smit, you know, they do love them. And I think most of the friends that I've had who've never rode a Harley, never had one, they go out, what's the first one they pick? They'll get on a Fat Bob straight away because it, it just looks badass in a proper way. It doesn't look tassels. It doesn't look hog. It doesn't look American. It looks Japanese. Have you, ta- have you had a chance to ride one yet? I have, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're superb. Uh, a 103-inch, which is the uh, 75-horsepower engine. So they are reasonably good fun to ride. I love the front wheel. That's why I've put the same front wheel in my Harley project. Yeah. Um, yeah. Big 130 section, fat, chunky tire, and a 16-inch hoop. Because it gives you a big, sure-footed front end, and you can be yeah. a complete idiot, throw it into corners, and it doesn't slide. Have you ridden uh, a new one, the new Fat Bob? I haven't, no. I uh, went to the Holly dealer recently, and they were waving the keys under my nose to that <laughs> new... Is it the FXRS, the new 20 grand? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, the, the FXR, yeah. That's... Uh... The FXDR, yeah. It's, that's yeah. A, it's a fun bike. It's got a bizarre seating position. Yeah, it's got well, a lot of get up and go to it. It handles really well. Um, yeah. But um, where, but the where f- are we going in terms of that? I'm I'm lost with where. I mean, I I don't say this really. I wouldn't never criticize the motor company. They know what they're doing. They're still alive after 120 years, so they're not really getting it wrong. But the point is, they had so many great avenues that they just put a block end wall on and finished with. They finished the Dyna platform. That broke my heart. I love Dynas more than any other platform. I love. Things like the Slim and things like the Fat Boy, of course we do. But Softail, Springer, that sort of stuff, classic bikes. But a diner is a diner. You're, they're always going to be the hooligans, Harley. Mm-hmm. But they've, they've killed it. They've mixed the DNA together. And you don't mix them because yeah. you don't. what you get is a half-breed. And it's neither of either. Right. And I think that's a real shame. But they've tried to pull it out of the bag with that. They killed the V-Rod, which is which a is, terrible... Oh, that breaks my heart. That just breaks my so, heart that they got rid of that. Well, the Night Rod Special, to my mind, was probably the most futuristic, brutal Harley they've ever made so far. All they needed was an engine with more power. They could easily have stuck the 117 engine into a V-Rod. It had the chassis, it had the, the handling, the wheels, the tires, the lock, but they've made a whole new lock. But they don't really hang on to anything very long. They killed Buell. They put that to bed for no apparent reason. It was winning races. And you know what? Who knows? But yeah. I, I still think Harley have to stick with the party faithful. Their buyers have always been hog owners, and they probably always will be. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's far be us to sit and discuss Harley. At the end of the day, I love my diner, and I think having done what, what I've done now is I sold my 2016 switchback mm-hmm. and the money into a 1999 carburetted diner twin cam. I've gone <laughs> backwards 20 odd years. And I love it. It's to me, it's more Harley than my Switchback was. What year is what year is the Dyna? Ninety nine. It's a right. rare bike. It's a ninety nine, but it's a twin cam. Right. Now you may know that the which way was it? It was 2000, the, two thousand. The ninety nine. The Sportsters went fuel injection. Yeah. And I think it was two thousand. The Dynas or the big twins? No, I'm going the other way. Aren't yeah, I? No, well, the, no, the. Uh... Well, I know there was a 2003, they, uh, no, sorry, it wasn't 2004, that's when they changed, the, which one was it? No, that's right, the, the, twin cam, the twin cam went right up to a couple of years ago. Oh, yeah, yeah. the twin cam did, yeah. but always fuel injection. It's very difficult to buy a carburetor twin cam. Oh, sure. 
because almost the same year they brought the twin can. That's what I was meant to say. The twin can came along in '99, and for one year it had a carburetor. In 2000, they gave it fuel injection. Right. So okay. it's really hard, and that's what I meant. Yeah, I tried. I tried my hardest to find a twin cam carbon engine, and they're really, really rare. And have you have you taken off the 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 cam cover yet? It's all been done. Oh yeah, uh, cam chain yeah. tensioners are okay. I was incredibly lucky. Well, they've all been replaced. The um, previous owner was meticulous. He bought it new. I was very lucky to get a bike that was absolutely one owner from spanking new. Oh wow. Uh, the guy bought it in 99 from a Harley dealer about 200 miles away. It went back to that dealer every year for service. Um, and the dealer started nagging him at about 25,000 miles about the cam chain tensioners. He said, okay, go ahead. He relented at 30,000 and he had both cam chain primary and secondary replaced, both chains, uh, Screaming Eagle 203 cams and roller roller tappets as well. So the whole valve train is completely robust. Wow, nice. And brush it and forget it which i did he uh did he go hydraulic or did he put the original ones in no no it's just roll just standard roller tappets no i'm talking about the cam chain tensioners no 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 just standard ones oh really well they're the screaming eagle replacements because it's a kit you buy the screaming eagle 203 cams they're not lumpy or hot cams or anything they're slightly fresher than the original factory grind they're not an eight they're not an andrews b grind or anything like that they don't make the bike go any faster but they just freshen it up they give a slightly lumpier tick over mm-hmm. just a little bit they make the bike sound a bit beefier it's difficult to describe if you read the forums most people have got different impressions of what 203 cams do yeah. but they are an accepted upgrade so all of that was done at a cost of about a thousand pounds i think he paid the dealer to have that done and it's I've inherited a lot, all of it. So that's wow. nice. Good for you. That's, that's what I'm dealing with right now. My cam chain tensioners went on my uh, heritage. So the bike has been, uh, yeah. They, they didn't. I put it so I caught it just in time because I, I heard a noise. So I, I figured I knew what I kind of knew what it was already. So I took the cam cover off, and you could see the chain was just wearing through the uh, the shoe oh, on the camera. Just in time. I just okay. caught it. I probably, I, I'm venturing to say I probably could have gone maybe 10 more miles and it would have ripped apart. Because you know, you know what it does. Oh, yeah. Actually, it's <laughs> yeah. just like a grenade's gone off in your engine. <laughs> exactly. So the bike hasn't, the bike hasn't moved since October. So, yeah, I'm trying to, ra- I'm raising the money for it. I'm, I'm uh, buying parts right now for it. I want to go to the hydraulic uh, setup, the Screaming Eagle hydraulic set, uh, but that's five hundred ten American dollars for that whole kit. So, yeah, do you need that? I always ask myself with people email me all the time. What was the last one I had yesterday? Somebody said, "While you got the headlight out, why wouldn't you put a Daymaker headlight in it? Why wouldn't you?" You think, hang on. Firstly, two hundred and fifty pounds. Yeah, they don't have. <laughs> Secondly. It isn't that dark around here. I don't need to bring planes down with my headlight. So there's always people who will say, why wouldn't you? Why don't you? But personally, I think sometimes the factory gets things generally right. Yeah. You know, for, for certain, replace the cam chain tensors, primary and secondary, stick new ones in, new chains, roller tappets and some 203. If you, if you consider your cams, if you're going to change them, the Screaming Eagle 203s are no more money than your standard factory cams. Right. That's Actually, also, in certainly in England, the 203 cams are easier to buy because most dealers will keep them on the shelf, unlike the cams, because most of them are worn out. And who puts the standard cams back in when there's a cheaper and better option? But yeah. other than that, there's often to upgrade. I, I wouldn't bother with upgrading to hydraulic. I don't see what it gives me. What do you gain from that $500? 
Uh, you know, I hear things like, well, you'll never have to worry about it again. And then I go, well, my, uh, my current cam chain tensioners lasted 52,000 miles. But, but that's, that's, that's false because they're faulty. They were faulty from birth. Oh, yeah. That's, they, they have a birth defect. You know, that's the trouble with those. <laughs> those cams are born rubbish. But once you've, sorry, the tensioners, once you've replaced them, the ones you're putting in now, they're not just correct. They're brand new. They're yeah. that much newer than your engine. Now, your motor will do 200,000 miles on standard tappets. You don't need to put hydraulic in. If you want to spend some money, spend it on a front compensator, a nice soft take-up compensator so you get a smoother running engine that's nicer to ride. It's still just as quick, still just as much grunt. It doesn't take anything away from the power. It just makes it a less harsh experience, not so much chatter in the primary. Wow. There's, there's the other thing. People now are putting in hydraulic, auto, not hydraulic, um, automatic cam, uh, primary chain tensioners. So yeah. you don't have to tension your primary chain every 5,000 miles. It's not a big deal. It takes yeah. 10 minutes. Right. But it's just another job people like to delete. Certainly the guys who've had newer bikes and never had to consider it. Right. Because they're self-adjusting. But yeah. there we are. I, I'll leave it. You know, the primary side is fine. There's nothing going on over there. I, I'm, I'll, I take the cover off, inspect everything, make sure everything's good, and I put it back together. I, I, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Absolutely. How many miles have you got now on yours? 52,000 miles. 52. That's not even running. <laughs> <laughs> that's not really nice I had here. a bad year. I had a bad year. I, did, I only got in like 3,600 miles this year. I know. Well, you do more mileage than we do because we have a tiny country. It's a, it's yeah. a day out to do 100 miles for us. It seriously is. But... In a Harley, they're designed for eating miles. You know, they they all, there was a famous case. I've said it so many times to friends, they all fall asleep if I mention it again. <laughs> I met an Australian couple, um, a Mr. and Mrs. Forward. They were going round the world on their Harley Davidson tour glide. Remember tour glides? Oh my God. <laughs> you know, like an Evo engine caravan, big massive thing. And we spotted them. We hooked up with them at a local Harley dealer. They pulled in on their way around the planet. I think four times they went around 400 countries or something. It's all online. And they did something like 300 or 400,000 kilometers on their 1340. That's crazy. And and there's a list of stuff on the website of what they replaced. And nowhere on the list is cams or cam tensors or I think (laughs) think they did one base gasket on the rear, which is common on 1340s. They did... um, I think a top end, but the bottom end of that motor was the same. When that end, when that bike was eventually retired from its journey to the moon and back, it it was the bottom end was completely solid. They got this crazy list of like 200 tires and 27 belts and 46,000 <laughs> gallons of oil, but none of it were the components that we stand here fretting about for no reason at all. As you said, it ain't broke, don't fix it. It's good fun to fix it once it's broke. Unless it's cam chain tensioners. Right. <laughs> but you know what? Not for anything, but the Evo engine is the most bomb-proof engine you will find in any yeah. motorcycle anywhere. They are. Absolutely. I totally agree. And I think only because at that point they didn't bother tuning it to its potential. Um, because if you detune or undertune anything, it lasts forever, doesn't it? So oh, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Hey, getting back to the Street Fighter real quickly, what was the yeah. most difficult part of that doing that whole build? The most difficult part was making the decision to scrap the tail. Really? I, I chewed my ear out for that. I really did because I put probably ah, three to five months, I think, into the original Street Fighter tail. Um, I used a Harley Fat Bob tank, a Sportster tank, uh, and lots and lots and lots of materials and many months of time and effort. 
and ended up just scrapping it. Um, or I didn't scrap it completely. I put the materials to other use, which I've right. done. But nevertheless, that, that was a lot of work uh, done twice. So big lessons learned. Right. I think the most technically taxing was stuff I'd just never done before. Just never gone to the upside down forks. They were the first pair of upside down forks that I'd actually ripped apart, cleaned and put back together. But it's just nuts and bolts. It's not difficult. Grab a manual, have a look where it goes and what goes before what. And it all works when you're finished. And if you've got no bits left over, you did good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, yeah, it's not it's not a good thing to have parts left over. No, no, it's, you can't sell them on eBay and make any benefit from that, can you? <laughs> no. There's always going to be a cost down the line. Usually something will go bang or leak or fall off. But I think generally the hardest part of it was I regret not buying a better donor bike. Um, I went out with... £2,000 UK to a dealer that I know. Uh, he's just a, a trade-in dealer, you know, like not a backstreet guy. He's been around a long time. He's got a great reputation. He sells, he buys the trade-in bikes off the main dealers, um, cleans them up and sells them. But this trade-in bike that I started the project with was a trade-in that he took. It really was. It was a, I went up and saw him and said, like, £2,000, I want a Honda Blackbird. That's what I went up there for to buy a 1,000cc right. Honda Blackbird. I was going to make a street fighter out of a Blackbird. There is already a bike like that. It's the Honda X11, but I just had a fantasy that I could make a better version of it. There's me, okay, <laughs> or whatever. But obviously, when I got there, he said, ah, but oh, what about this for just half of your money? Well, how can you refuse that? Right. I'm going to spend two grand. He says, no, I only want one grand, please, little man. Take that bike and run along. So, of course, I did, as I was told. I rode it home. Uh, it had all sorts of problems, but for a grand, it was a bargain. And it was only probably to a couple of months later, I thought, I'm putting all this time into a 750. But therein lies the issue. That 750 is still a 100-horsepower bike. It will still do 150 miles an hour, and it will still kick ass on a track day. So certainly now it's got all of the new suspension and so on. So I'm quite happy, but it yeah. just, I'm kind of a, I'm a cubes guy. You know, I like big cubes. And if I could have done all of that, to a thousand cc bike or a thirteen hundred cc bike a Hayabusa, I definitely would have been just a little bit prouder of it than I am today. But that's purely for no real reason. It's a seven fifty, and I can't ride it to its limit, so I don't know what I'm worried about. To be honest, <laughs> too old for that. Was there any apprehension when you had that Sportster tank in your hand and you're getting ready to cut it up? <laughs> um, Did you? This is a perfectly good Sportster tank, and I'm about to cut it up. The, the first one that I hung over the front to make the nose cone from, none at all. Because actually, if you go back in the videos, that was it was from a company in Germany. They are a blank. There's no bottom in them. Oh, really? There's, okay. It's just the top half. Um, so you buy them with no hole cut for a fuel cap. It yep. wasn't actually a tank. That's what I made the front from. But the rear one was a gift. It was a chap uh, who sent me the tank, and it was a genuine peanut tank. The proper oh, wow. one. Oh, yeah. From a, a 1982, um, probably not, probably an Ironhead tank, I imagine. Wow. Or maybe if it was a Blockhead tank, it was just a bit later, like a mid 80s one. But it was that original tiny peanut mm -hmm. tank. Yeah, I definitely did. I definitely did hesitate with the grinder and laying the disc <laughs> into that. But I needed it for a reason. He knew I needed it. I said it online, and he sent it to me for that purpose. It was rusted out underneath. It wasn't nice. Uh, but all things like that. I mean, I have had robust criticism from viewers in the past about butchering tanks which <laughs> other people could use and so on so you know these parts parts like that early sports to tank are not easy to obtain now so i probably wouldn't do that again yeah uh, 
bit more mechanical respect for things these days. I, <laughs> uh, I want to talk to you about the painting that you did on that. Yeah, right. it's it's amazing what you're doing with what we call a rattle can. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's just a paint delivery system, isn't it? It's not. Yeah. It's it's a way of atomizing liquid paint and laying it on a surface. It doesn't matter whether it comes out an airbrush, a spray gun, uh, or, or a paintbrush. Um, I learned from a chap I used to work when I did my training as a bus fitter, as a bus mechanic many years ago. Um, the London buses at the time. Uh, the old London buses, the ones they call Routemasters, uh, they were hand-painted. And the guys that paint them are coach painters, or they were called coach painters. Um, and they, the term coach painter doesn't come from coaches that take kids on holiday to Switzerland. We're talking about coach and horses, coach painters. Oh, wow. <laughs> Literally, that's where coach painting came from. And it's the process of being so good at hand-painting with a brush, there are no brush marks. You wow, know, That's uh, amazing. It is. And these guys were incredible. I used to watch them. So they could lay up a panel, which was the, the term they used for painting one of the parts of the bus. They'd take a panel on the bus, take a tin of paint and a brush, and they would paint it over. Then they would use a certain upward stroke of the brush, and that would lay out the paint, and there'd be no brush marks. No bristles left like we get, you know? Yeah. No flies in it, nothing like that. It would always be. <laughs> and the next day, of course, they use a very special paints. They use oil-based paints. Uh, or you call them min yeah, mineral mineral spirit-based paints, which they don't dry by evaporation. They cure by uh, a different process, and effectively that sets, the, so it floats out. And I learned from this guy about the concept of floating out. He showed me, if you take a panel, you lay on enough paint, you lay it down flat, you put enough paint on, it's self-leveling. It floats out. Now, you then cross-reference that with a panel that maps as an upright bit, Obviously, it's not going to float out. No. It's going to run off. Right. <laughs> so there's the, there's the practice with painting, is to lay on enough paint by whatever delivery system you choose, spray gun, airbrush, rattle can, or paintbrush. It doesn't matter. Lay enough on so that the wet material floats out, self-levels, and becomes glossy and flat and doesn't run at the same time. So there's – and it's just practice. And as my friend Mackie says, the guy with the airbrush, yeah. it's not talent – it's practice. It truly is. There's no talent in rattle cans. Rattle cans are, are a real pain in the ass. You've got to get them warm enough. They clog. So when I get a, a nozzle on the top of the can that is clear still at the end of use, I take it off and keep it as a spare. And I've got a big box full of them. So you'll get spraying away and suddenly it just stops. It won't work anymore with half a can left. So chuck it away, put a nice clear one and carry on. So once you're prepared and practiced rattle can paint, you can make a really nice job. It's all about the preparation. I'm sure you know that. Oh, yeah. So because I was I was wondering why you never put a clear coat over that. Well, the, this is the stuff on the street fighter. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Well, it's satin black anyway. So if you put a clear coat, it becomes gloss. And I don't want gloss. Right. Uh, the other reason is that that particular paint, it's proper job in life its real intended purpose is to paint crash bars and and bumpers and fences and gates it's a utility paint oh. it's not for vehicles um in well it is but it's not for the decorative bodywork of vehicles it's for the robust parts your your tow bar um your trailer bumper or something or something right. like that it's it's a, a paint that's formulated uh, it's called Tough Paint uh, by a company called Simonize. There are many others. Rustoleum do a version of it as well. I'm sure you've heard of Rustoleum. Um, yes. It's a paint that doesn't set rock hard. It stays flexible. So after three months, you can still put a thumbnail mark in it, come back the next day, and that thumbnail mark's gone. It's really clever stuff. Wow. It's kind of a, an elastic paint. And the great thing with it, 
is that on any bike, it will just it will be resilient to the chips and marks that are going to come at you from the environment, from the zip on your jacket, from your keys that you drop on the tank one day, you know, all of that stuff. And the other side of it is what I like the most with its flexibility is as a base coat. When I did the turbo bike and my friend Mackie came down and did the airbrush paintwork, we used that tough paint as a base. Mm-hmm. So you, I laid up eight coats really thick and then flat sanded it back with wet sandpaper right down to sort of 1200 grit paper, get it super flat, super smooth. And then you can lay the artwork on top of that, then the clear coat. And the nice thing is that if the base underneath your artwork is flexible, then that artwork's never going to crack because the the substrate underneath the artwork is moving. It's flexible as the metal in your fuel tank expands and contracts, then the top coat's not going to break. I'm sure you've seen, you know, you get, you put the hand on your tank when it's five degrees centigrade outside, it's very, very cold and it'll probably stick. (laughs) Whereas in a summer's day, you know, when the black tank with the sun beating on it, 40 degrees, you'll fry an egg on it. So, Naturally, the, the metal expands and contracts with that, so the paint must do so too. So if you're going to put expensive artwork, flexible underlayers are a great idea. So that's I never use top coat or a clear coat because it's not necessary. Right. You just don't need it. You can buy clear coat for that stuff if you want it to be glossy, or you can just buy the gloss version of it. Uh, but clear coats really are for sealing in vulnerable finishes such as artwork. That's all they're really for. Or metallic. There's another reason for clear coat. If you have a metallic, it brings out the depth like a varnish. Yeah. Are you, are you happy that that project's done with? It's well, as we said earlier, it's not done with as such. <laughs> okay. I, let, let me rephrase. Are, are you happier off of that project? Off of it, yes. Yes. <laughs> After two years, nine months, there was practically bugger all else I could think to do to it other than ride the pants off it. Have and, you been riding it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Being very, very, not so much in the salt and the ice that we've got right now, but certainly towards the end of the season, I gave it a good few hundred miles of a, a sound spanking around the lanes around here just to make sure that everything works as it should, really. Um, treating that as a kind of shakedown period, that there's nothing outstanding. And there is, there's a couple of little jobs, but they'll be off camera later on. They're nothing. They're the sort of thing you just do to your bike for daily maintenance, you know, brakes. When your brakes bed in, you know, you, you, your chain and beds in. It's a brand new chain of sprockets that needs adjusting after about 50 to 100 miles yeah. uh, when everything's bedded. It's that sort of thing. And also, after 500, maybe 1,000 miles, I'll go over the whole bike and do what I think only Harley Davidson do, which is a critical fastness check. Um, you might know this if you take your Harley for a major service. One of the things they do is a critical fastness check. They go over all of a list of major well, fasteners on the bike to make sure they haven't rattled loose or become overly tight because mm-hmm. they, they work both ways. Some things sure. can tighten themselves up. So that's what I'm going to do with the Street Fighter. I'll go over every single fastener after a thousand miles and make sure it hasn't worked loose because they're all brand new fasteners, brand new threads, new components, the new suspension. And all the bushes and bearings and seals, everything I fit in is still bedding in, wearing in nicely. That's just common sense, really. And the same reason why your dealer asks you to go back at a 1,000 miles so they can check that your bike that rolled off the factory line is bedding in and, and settling in nicely. It's oh, essential. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. How, so many, many, how many miles did that bike have on it when you got it? Uh, what, the Street Fighter was 29,000, as far as I remember. I've still got the clocks from it because I chose to keep them because I have a memory of a goldfish. It was 29,000 <laughs> 29, miles uh, and, and it was in nice condition for that. It had had some money spent on maintenance. I've got a yeah. lot of maintenance bills to so the engine itself. The actual motor is in great condition. Uh, it's a carburetted engine. It's crisp on the button, great compression. 
and the gearbox is slick and smooth, doesn't jump out of gear. It just needed a new clutch, as you may have seen in the last video I saw mm -hmm. that I did. Um, when I put it back together with the with a little bit of extra grunt and some giving it some welly on the road, it was slipping really badly. Just tried to wheelie it a few times, just ping the clutch and give it some welly, and it just didn't want to come up. It would spin the clutch up. So now that's not the case. All you need <laughs> to do is literally two and a half, three thousand revs, load up the throttle, ping the clutch, and it comes straight up like just to order. So wow. it's a lovely bike to ride, crisp, sharp, and of course it pulls a lot harder now because the clutch isn't sliding. But apart from that, I mean, a clutch slip is possibly wear and tear from before I bought it, but it could also be the fact that it sat for two and a half years doing nothing. <laughs> that have, does have an effect, you know. Have you had anybody uh, offer you money for it? Um, not so far. No. Not so far. <laughs> um, not so, I mean, I... I think it's because I haven't said that it's for sale. In fact, quite the contrary. I've said that it's mine and it's a keeper and all that. But, of course, all these things, I have a channel which, I, you know, I'm hungry for bikes. I need to buy another donor bike in a minute, literally, for <laughs> the next project. Um, because the, the Harley-Davidson's a finite build. I've placed uh, a very much-needed deadline on that build of the end of March. Um, I promised myself I'll have that running and riding by the end of March, and that means come April, I'll need another project. So that project will hopefully be a cafe racer, or cafe racer as you'd say, um, and I need a donor bike for that. So I haven't got any money to buy one, <laughs> certainly not enough spare to buy a proper bike. You can go and buy a little 250 or something, but it's that's not interesting. It's mm. not interesting as a, as a bike build, so I don't know. But And anything classic is going to cost too much money. An old classic British bike, an old Triumph Bonneville from the 60s, forget it, you know, £10,000 for a half-decent yeah. one. Uh, and again, sacrilege to cut them up now. It's getting that, you know, you wouldn't necessarily buy a muscle car now and put the same modifications you might have right. done to it in the 80s. You know, you just wouldn't put side pipes on your Camaro now, would you? You know, you, you kind of... I wouldn't own a Camaro, no? <laughs> no, you know what I'm saying. You, know, you yeah. go and get... Your, I get you. At 64, um, what, what's the best... What is it? There's, I, somebody did one a little while ago. Um, it was a 64 two-door Nova. Okay. And it came to this guy with all of the period-correct extras from the 1980s. You know, fur seat covers, a fur <laughs> lining inside the car, massive Kragar tires, uh, um, traction wheels, like five-spoke chrome wheels that were horrid. And the guys literally just ripped it all off, thrown it away, and restored it back to standard. There's no way in 19... What is it? 64. So in 1975, as an 11-year-old car, you wouldn't drive that standard. How boring was that? So... <laughs> Thing classic yeah, you know well a classic bike now it has to be restored you can't really rip them apart and customize oh my God, them. yes you know not as they get rarer modern triumphs well again they're expensive to buy a modern triumph bonneville to make a cafe racer just buy a thruxton they're ready made like you yeah. can't build you know i can't put all that time and effort into building something that you can buy off the shop floor it's got to be unique um people say hondas uh honda 650 or 750 cb honda Back in the 1970s, they were 10 a penny. People used to rip the engine out, put them in choppers. But now, honestly, a decent one of those, 10 or 15,000 pounds, all classic vehicles have gone up in oh, price. Oh, sure. Absolutely. So if somebody comes along and says, I want the Street Fighter, I'm, we can come to how they might want it because it's still yet to be painted. <laughs> yeah. it's still yet to, I'm, I'm still keen to do the wrap. But if I found somebody interested, I'd work with them on what they want it to look like because it's still just a blank canvas we can yeah. finish it to their standards so that'll be something very special to find a buyer for it and finish it as you put it to <laughs> their required standard so they get 
practically a bespoke bike that they want within reason. I think that'd be a nice thing, but it's finding that person, isn't it? It's a unique thing. But it sounds to me like the door is open to anything. It is. Yeah. So if if somebody came along to buy it, then it would definitely go up the road. And that way, then I'd have the budget for something quite impressive as a donor bike to make a really cool cafe racer build taking me, well, not two and a half years. (laughs) (laughs) Well, tell us about this current project you got going on. You're calling it the Fox Dog. Well, FXDWG, that's obvious. It comes from um, it's just the, the acronym for uh, Dyna Wide Glide. Um, it was honestly, it's a simple makeover build. I, I'm focused on the cafe racer build. I'm focused on making something crazy. Um, I've got some ideas of what I want to do. Something stupidly fast, uh, outrageously overpowered and dangerous. And I think that's necessary. <laughs> that's um, what cafe I, racers are supposed to be. <laughs> they're meant to be dangerous. Absolutely. There was a guy I saw once. He put a he took a Honda CBR 400 one of the Japanese import bikes, and he put a CBR 900 Fireblade engine in it, which is great. That's brilliant. You genius. Completely you know, inappropriate, but okay. <laughs> is it, though? Now, let's just a minute. Is it? Look at the Corvette. What have we got there? We've got a, a, a car the size of a shoe, and it's got a 7-liter V8. Of course. Crazy. <laughs> you and must do that. <laughs> you must do that. It's the law. So... This is the point. I need to basically a muscle bike is what I'm trying to make, and I need the budget for that. But yeah, with the Harley, I, I thought the great way, the best way I can think of to not jump too early, to not pull the trigger too soon and buy the wrong bike and embark on the next 12 months with the wrong bike again, which, you know, I, I have that regret from the Street Fighter bird. I should have bought a 1,000cc bike, ended up with a 750. Yeah. To do it right this time, I've filled this period, this dark, nasty, dirty winter period with something fun and games. So that's where the Harley build came from. Uh, it was it was meant to be a rat bike build. Um, oh, I really? Saw, yeah, I saw a 1340... Oh, crikey. Do you know what? It was so modified, I couldn't even see what the original bike was. It was twin tanks, uh, wide glide front end. Um, it had a swing arm, so probably a, some sort of FLH of some kind, uh, an original Evo engine. But it was just, a, it was a pig, this thing. It was awful. But the guy didn't want much for it. And I wanted to buy it because I think, well, I can paint that whole thing matte black and just make it a shed and do a proper rat bike. The problem is we confuse rat bike with survival bike. They're two different things. Yeah. And Many people don't understand. Well, not so many anymore, but most people think anything matte black is a rat bike. But when you look on a proper genuine rat bike is a, is a two decades of patina and fixing it on the side of the road with something you find in the dumpster. You know, it's it's got to be absolutely original in every way, have its own character. And I thought to start that, to set the ball rolling, take all the paint off, do some oil burning, um, which I love the oil burn finish on stuff, which takes it. It takes a dark, rusted patina and it stays there. It doesn't get any worse. Um, car tires, just because it's stupid and crazy and dangerous. Because <laughs> they're know, so good in the corners. <laughs> it's so good in the corners. But a bike like that's going to be crap in the corners anyway. So you no. don't, you don't polish your turd. So I think, obviously, that that guy was just insufferable. I called him up and said, can I buy this bike? And yeah, yeah, fine. He said, I'll call you back and we'll make a plan. He didn't. And when I contacted him, he said, oh, yeah, I forgot it was my snooker night or something. He just didn't <laughs> sell it. He wasn't serious. No. And another guy, this is the craziest story. I found another one. I found what I've got. It was a it was a Dyna Wide Glide, but it was the Evo motored one. It was from 88. Oh, yeah. And I was happy with that. And this guy said, well, I've, it's been, I want to buy a boat. 
uh, and I need the money. So I'm going to put a bid. This is a story. This is cool. I'm going to put a bid in on a boat. And if I win it, then I need to sell my bike. But if I don't win the boat auction, then I won't be selling my bike. So do you want to buy it? I said, really? Oh, okay. This sounds fun. So I put a bid in and he accepted it. He said, right, I've got to get it MOT'd. Do you have that there? I guess it's like a inspection. Yes, yeah, so it's similar. Something they actually here in New Jersey, we don't have to get our motorcycles inspected. Oh, really? Yeah, we He's don't left. have to. We just have to register it. So they can just fall apart. And no one cares. Pretty much. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> to live there tomorrow. But now this guy, I phoned him up and he said, well, "I've got to get an MOT on it. It's been off the road for two years. I'm going to fire it up, go and get an MOT." And with what I had planned for it, I didn't care what state it was in. It wasn't expensive. So he goes and gets it MOT'd, and I didn't hear back from him. And I call him up. Uh, probably the next day, I said, where are you? Did it, how did it pass? He said, ah, oh, um, I've got a bit of a story about that, I'm afraid. Said, oh, here we go. This is going to be funny. But it couldn't have been funnier. Apparently, he put it in for MOT, walked out of the MOT station and got run over by a van. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, no. And he was calling me from the hospital. <laughs> I'm in the ER, and I'm going to bust in this and that, and uh, I'm going to be out of action for a while, dude. Uh, no problem. <laughs> I said... Just to be really callous and heartless. I went, oh, by the way, how did the bike get on? <laughs> I just got F off and he put the phone down. <laughs> and then I kept looking. And my wonderful wife, Penny, she was looking online. She found the white bike, the one we've now got. Right. It was in uh, Truro in Cornwall, which is 300 miles away. Wow. Um, so she said this was on a on a Monday, I think, or Sunday. Was it a Monday or something? Monday. It, it was on a Monday at 1 p.m. and she found this bike. And I said, "Do you know what? It's I can't believe it." I said, "That's a, how can that be a 99-1450?" Did some sums. Oh my god, could it be? It's a carburetted one. I want it. I want it. This is one of them left on the planet. It's it. <laughs> it's, it's mine. I phoned this guy up and said, "I'll have it." And he said, "Hang on, you haven't seen it yet." I said, "Don't care. Oh, it's for one and one." Probably not the best way to buy a vehicle. No, though. probably not. <laughs> Look, you're a bit keen there, aren't you, son? <laughs> so, he said, well, so let's do a deal. I'm going to come and get it and ride it away. You're 300 miles away. I'm not going to waste my time. How much is it? He said, well, the price is on the listing. I said, no, how much is it? Come on, <laughs> how much is it? Because what I'm going to do is if we agree a figure, I'm bringing that money and it's all yours. Oh, he said. So he came up with a figure. We agreed numbers and we hit the road by 2 p.m. And we were outside his house at about 6 p.m. And it rained all the way down in the car badly. Heavy rain all the way down. We did the deal. The guy was fantastic. The bike was better than I thought. The history was insane. Every nut, bolt, and washer. It turns out the couple bought it new. They had the factory seat taken off because the pillion was too small. Right. For his wife, who was a, a, a normal-sized lady, not a marmosette, as they seem to make <laughs> seats for. And they rode it away from the dealership with a Corbin King and Queen saddle on, which they bought with the bike. And they never rode it solo at once in 20 years. Everywhere wow. that bike went. That's impressive. It is. It's a tragic story. I did say it in a video. Basically, the, the, the good lady was sadly struck by a vehicle when she was crossing the road. And this isn't funny. Uh, she was stepping into the road to protect uh, her grandchild who was in the road. And as she did so, a vehicle struck her and injured her quite badly. Um, wheelchair for several years and only this only this year on crutches and healing nicely. Pins, 
um, damn near close amputation, but no, she got away with it, and she will be fine. She'll make a full recovery as much well, as... that's wonderful. It is wonderful news. However, the riding days were over, and that was two and a half years ago, I think, and in that period of time, the chap rode it by himself twice. Just really? to the Just twice? It, just to the dealer and back for service, annual service. That's it. He said it broke his heart. Being unable to ride with his girl behind him, uh, and these people are retired. That's how he referred to her. So they've been married 40-odd years. He said, if she can't ride with me, I'm just lost interest. He was a member of Hog. Um, he'd stopped going on the Hog events, so kind of lost all those friends. And yeah. in the end, just said it's done. He's now got arthritis in his hand, and he can't pull the clutch in because those old bikes, as you know, they're a heavy clutch. Oh, like your, man, you don't have to tell me. Ooh. Big old pull. So, and he said, that's it. I've got to admit defeat. Um, and they were tearful when we took it away because it was their baby. Um, it had a million trinkets on it from 20 years. And yes, I years, saw. You know, so it was a fabulous bike to buy um, and to get it home. And that's why she's mine now and she forever will be. And she and I will grow old together. It's a keeper for life. When it's finished, uh, it's not going to be a project again other than maintenance. You know, when jobs come up, I'll use it as a way of showing it to the mm -hmm. world. This is how you change this or do that. But as far as for sale, the Harley's not for sale, nor will it ever be. Um, oddly enough, uh, about two weeks after buying that, the guy who got run over by the van, <laughs> it passed. Do you got to come and get it? But there we are. There's a little rounder to the story. But no, I think the Harley is a, it's a fabulous story. And because of that, the wonderful richness of the story of where it came from, the previous owners, they're such nice people as well, you know. I mean, even the ride back. Oh, my God. The rain on the way down, it got worse on the way back. Oh, was, wow. Really? I think Moses sent it. It was just <laughs> evil. By the time we got back, I was so wet and it's so cold. It's one of those things. It's one of those journeys which we all have in life on a motorcycle, which you will forever remember. Um, you know, I think we are marked by those journeys, aren't we? You know, a specifically rainy day or a bad breakdown or something that just took forever near accidents or near-death experiences you know they all mark our riding career uh, and they give us like a you know a milestone as we go along so from now on i'm just looking forward to making a nice makeover of the harley until march and then embark on a proper project so i'm thinking all the time what that might be still have no idea <laughs> so you're, you're, you're going to stick to that march date well, as much as the bike will allow me to, I think I'm not going to cut corners because the bike's that important. Yeah, but I've got uh, remarkably little left to do. I've got to get the front wheel is now in. I'm editing uh, this evening and tomorrow morning for the weekend's video. That will be I've shot that now. That's all done. The front wheels in the spacers, the stainless steel spacers are made. I had to just realign the front wheel because it was just out of line slightly. And I've got to do the same on the rear wheel. So that's the next video. Then I've got all that tinware ready to paint. Once that's painted, reassemble all that, put it on the bike, and that's it. Really? Well, get the body wrap on the tins, you know, that vinyl yeah. wrap yeah. on all that. That's got to be done. I'm going to change the carburetor as well. I'm going to take that CV carburetor and throw it in a hedge because it's just rubbish. They're, they're <laughs> good. It's great to have a carburetor. I just wish I had a good one. So I'm thinking of perhaps a Delorto or a dual twin choke Weber or something, something punchy because the 203 cams have got massive potential. If you feed a bit more fuel down its neck, it responds with more horsepower. It will burn it. You've got the right cams for that. So with that, possibly um, an upgrade in the coils to give it a little bit punchier spark. 
and some better HT leads, some thicker ones, you know, just to give it all that it can to freshen it up and a little bit more carburation. So, yeah, a better carburetor, I think. Uh, make a nice air cleaner for that, possibly, or maybe just run it on open bell mouse so it sucks pension as in as it goes by. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, now that bike that, had a stage one uh, done to it, obviously. Did it have a stage two done? No, stage two is like an Andrews B grind cam or something. Yeah. Well, you could say, yeah, I guess you could say it's kind of stage two in the sense that it's got those Screaming Eagle 203 cams. They're not really a stage two cam. You go for an Andrews cam or a B grind or something, then that, or even an A grind, the earlier one. So that will give you a punchier performance. And these aren't really designed to do that. From what I read, the 203 cams, they're just designed to give a lumpier, more authentic tick over, a bit more potato potato, you know, yeah, and make the necessary. bike just, yeah, make the bike a little bit more, you know, visceral, that sort of thing. But apart from that, I, I you could probably say it's stage two because it's not standard cams. Um, but there we are. I don't, stage one or two doesn't make any difference. It's only when you get a cylinder head change for some uh, gas flowed cylinder heads, uh, some higher compressor, then you're really into engine tuning. Yeah. Then into stage three, which then really starts to make waves. You get adjustable push rods, so you can put big fat pistons in, push it out to 1800cc, start feeding decent fuel into it, and then you're making 100, 120 horsepower. But even then, you're only making the same horsepower as my 750 Street Fighter. <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter. No you can tune a Harley all you like. All you will do is is mess up the balance. I've always had this view of Harley-Davidson's is that they are a line of equals, equal handling, equal brakes, equal frame strength, and equal engine power. And if you bugger any of those up and change them, like putting 150 horsepower through it, well, you're going to die, really, because you've got no brakes, you've got no handling, you're going to go with the undergrowth <laughs> at some point, unless you just ride it in straight lines or go drag racing with it. But yeah. there's the point. If you upgrade one thing, you've got to upgrade the rest. It's yin and yang. You can't have... I mean, I've got an immense brake upgrade. You might have seen it. I've got a 330mm Brembo disc, four-pot calipers. I've got Yeah. But look at that bike. It had the standard two-and-a-half-inch wide pizza cutter tire <laughs> and brakes off a race bike. You know, a handful of that, and you are going down some. So it's I've addressed that with the big fat front tire. I've put the big 16-inch fat front tire now, so I've got a proper footprint that's going to grip a bit yeah. better. Uh, but it still doesn't have ABS, so it's still a bike you need to break. Oh, there's, there's kits for that. No, there's riding skill for that. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> ABS. ABS is fantastic for those who just want a bike they can just ride and forget and go to work in all weathers. But yeah. I think if you want an authentic experience and you've bought yourself a carburetted Harley-Davidson and you've changed it for this and, and you've made it actually probably a little harder to ride, you know, thinner seat and all that stuff, then really and honestly – Learn you know, how to ride. Learn how to ride. And I think it will. I've, I've met instructors who said in the past that guys who come back to biking after riding in the 70s and the 80s on muscle bikes, you know, things like the Z1000 and that or Z1000, that sort of stuff, they come back to biking now and they're actually quite good. You give them a modern bike and they're quite good because they can ride those wheezing, bending, coughing old nails that, and, and they didn't die. Yeah. <laughs> so if you give them a bike with traction control and ABS and heated grips and all of these mod cons, then they're never going to have a difficulty because yeah. they learned on a difficult to ride. I've always said that a Harley rider can always ride a sports bike safely. But a better sports bike rider couldn't ride a Harley round a bend without going in a hedge. <laughs> Because they're too used to it going round like it's on Velcro. Oh, right, exactly. It's definitely I mean, different it, handling. There's no question about it. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You have to 
accommodate the fact this thing's like a bus. It wants to go in a straight line. <laughs> you know, when I hear people talk about how Harley Davidsons don't perform well, the blah, 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 I always respond with, Harley Davidsons perform within the parameters for which they were designed. Quite right. Yeah. That's I mean, exactly. When you look at, when you look at a, a motor company that is still creating motorcycles that are, well, basically the silhouette of a 1936 knucklehead. So take your deluxe from today and you put it up against a 36 knuckle and you've got the same silhouette. However, much, yeah. look at the advancement in the two bikes. If you imagine a replica copy that's almost exactly the same as your 64 nova but it's got air conditioning it's got central locking fuel injection it starts it doesn't steam up well you don't get ice on the inside of the windscreen in the winter <laughs> that's you know, bad the, right the things, yeah from all the old 60s cars it doesn't smell of you know plastic and and kiddie vomit and fumes that will kill you inside the cabin because it's a modern car and it, it's in every way but would that car not sell in their millions you right. imagine that. Exactly. What Harley do is Harley do something that if a car manufacturer did it, they would have the most successful car sales on the planet ever. Take a classic, I don't know, take an E-Type Jaguar and make a modern replica of it where everything is modern. Everything's the same as a modern car. It performs like a Porsche 911, but it looks like a, a, a an E-Type Jaguar. Can you imagine who wouldn't want one? Oh, absolutely. Guys would be climbing to pay a million pounds for them because that's exactly what people want they want classic sexy looking lines they want a bike that they can stand and look at and make some tingle when they think of it something they can open the garage door sit on a deck chair take a beer and gaze at their bike yeah oh, of course you don't well, you do know, that there was that uh, the british company a few years ago if you saw it on top gear uh, uh eagle i think it was called they developed a, a newer new version of the e-type yeah yeah, yeah. i think that they you just can't afford it that's all <laughs> there's an electric one now isn't there you see <laughs> That's like you blasphemy, watch, you know? It isn't it, isn't it just? But then is it? Or is it the future? Because who's the first manufacturer to patent an electric motorcycle? Harley Davidson. Mm, yeah. The live wire, I mean, there are electric bikes out there, are loads of electric bikes. Yeah. But basically, the live wire is the first tangible bike that people will want to own if we have to someday in the future all go electric. And they right. don't wake up and smell the coffee and decide that actually hydrogen or, you know, that uh, there's a better fuel cell than electric because it isn't actually a green answer. But don't get me into that. <laughs> the, the point is a classically designed bike that looks gorgeous, that looks sexy and looks ancient. That's exactly what people would want in a car. And I think that's what sells Harleys to this day. What do you think of the electric bikes while we're talking about it? S sadly, they are the future. That's where we're going. Yeah. Um, they are fun to ride. I've never ridden one. I don't know. It's the instantaneous power that people will talk about first and foremost. Um, my friend, the Missenden Flyer, did a – he's a YouTube channel guy. He does reviews on bikes. He rode an electric bike. He's done a couple, I think, now. He said it's, it's absolutely incredible. The acceleration, it isn't progressive like a petrol engine. It's instantaneous. You get 100% of your horsepower just off throttle. That's just, <laughs> give it to me. I want that. That's amazing. So it's only going to be when us crazy waffling old Luddites have all died and our children's children are riding bikes. They won't have the rose-tinted spectacles and, and misty eyes of petrol engines and leaking fuel and all that stuff. They won't have that problem. They won't have that holdback against them thinking to the future. And they'll be looking at electric bikes as the only answer. And in 
probably a hundred years from now, there'll be no petrol engine bikes anymore. Well, there will be. They'll be in museums and collections. But whether they'll be legal to ride, probably not by then, I imagine. I I think there's a a bit of romance in it that's going to be missing. Of course, of course. If you look at, um, what was the film? iRobot with Will Smith. Yeah. He pulls a Ducati 916 out of a garage and rides it up the road. The girl says, hang on, this runs on gasoline. Don't you know that explodes? <laughs> yes. Of course. I love it. <laughs> and that's, that's in, sadly, that's probably going to be the opinion of petrol engines in, in two or three generations' time. So, like they always say, enjoy it while you can. Yeah, this is true. I just wish somebody, and hopefully Harley Davidson will take this, will build an electric bike that looks like a cruiser that we have today. Yeah. Well, no. they they better do because if they don't, then Indian will. Yeah, this, <laughs> this is true. You're right. <laughs> but actually, the Japanese will probably do it first, and then Harley will make a, a version of it. I don't know. I mean, it, the problem is that the heart of any motorcycle is its motor. It's the engine in the, in, the, in the middle, and without that, I think the rest of it's just cycle parts. It's so just they'll dressing. have to go. Yeah, I think potentially you could say conspiracy theory warning you could say that the advent of the newest harley the fxs the, the new yeah, the FXDR, scary, right fxdr you could say that that is revving up to make a bike that isn't visually centered around its engine okay i mean yeah they had it with the v-rod you could say the v-rod wasn't about its engine it didn't visually hang on its engine as its center point it was part of the overall bike, but Night Rod Special certainly was more about the back wheel and so on. So if you look at the way that bikes are being designed now, um, the way the chassis design is going, could there be some forward, I mean, super forward planning going on where they're creating chassis now that can accommodate not just modern V-twin, not just 72 degree V-twins, potato, potato, but also future engines that they may wish to put in them, yeah. such as electric motors. I mean, the live wire is only a prototype they'll probably never look like that every bike that they've ever built that looks remotely like that has been deleted such as the buell or the xr 1200 you know they're all gone now because they don't keep anything that doesn't look like a cruiser so you're right they'll have to put if they're gonna make the live wire they will have to put it in a cruiser well they've announced it here in the u.s i don't know if they've made the announcement in in uh in your area yet but they've now made the announcement now and they've actually showed us pictures of what we will see in August, when it's when oh, it's really? released, yes, and it doesn't look far different from what we saw a couple of years ago when they released it, when they showed us. This is the live wire, the live wire, yeah. And in fact, they've released the the all the data on it already. Yeah. Uh, uh, but the, the price, I think, is freaking everybody out because it's going to cost you thirty thousand dollars. Well, yeah. is that a lot of money for what it is? Uh, <laughs> uh, well, for the average guy. Well, bear in mind, those prices go down by half within the first three years. Let's hope. They do. Well, normally they do. Any prototype is always priced way out of the space. I think if you look at previous jobs where bikes have come out, they've made a prototype, they've predicted a price, and then the price has hit the showrooms, and it's been significantly less. The best example of that, if you've ever followed Aprilia motorcycles, when I worked in the motorcycle trade for a period of time, we were Aprilia dealers, and... It was at a period of time when Aprilia released their first four-stroke large-capacity engine. They made a V-twin thousand called the RSV Mille. Now, the RSV was meant to be their first proper superbike because previous to that, Aprilia were just small bikes. Scooters, 125s, 250s. They made the, 
the uh, the Aprilia RS250 was based around a Suzuki engine, the Suzuki V-Twin two-stroke, the RGV, and they were world beaters. They were winning on the track within their class, and the RSV Miele 1000 was their first superbike. Now, I remember this is where I think you will see the live wire physically change in its exp- in its appearance, t- sadly to a disappointing level because this is what happened with the RSV Mili. Uh, it was it looked like an RS250 on steroids. I had the picture somewhere around here for years. It was a, a, an illustration, you know, like the standard illustration sure. of, a, of a concept bike. And the concept bike for the RSV Mili was stunning. It just looked like a pumped up RS250. It was mad and everybody would have wanted one. When you saw the actual bike, Oh, really? There was something just deflated about it. The tank was smaller, but the seat unit was bigger. So it didn't have that butch the dog effect <laughs> from Tom and Gino. Yeah. Like big shoulders and the small right. tank. You know, it, it just looked a little bit normal, a bit ordinary. And when it was first muted, the bike was supposed to be £12,000 at the time. A Honda Fireblade was about £7,000. So it was going to be this amazing superbike. And the way they got around it, they made an SP version in carbon fiber and titanium and all that for track use. Limited numbers, 100 only will be produced, 20 grand. Wow, but really? Made, but the road bike came out 9995. No kidding, really? Ordinary non exotic materials like plastic and aluminium. So that was that. And the same happened very recently on the new Kawasaki Z900 or Z900 RS. Now, they've just brought that back. This is something um, exceedingly American, in fact, because the, the Z900, as we call it, is was originally an American bike. If you look at 1971, I think it was, possibly 73, they made the New York Stake, which was a, a prototype, four-cylinder, um, air-cooled muscle bike, and the Z900 was born. We all know that. Probably one of the most iconic bikes of the 20th century. Now, the Z900 went through all its changes, and it eventually petered out as probably the Z1000 came along, then the GPZ, the GPZ1100, then the 750 Turbo, then GPZ900, and on went that family of bikes. And they just reintroduced it. So they made the concept pictures for the Z900. It was coming back. The most iconic muscle bike of the 20th century. We have it for you. And there's the picture of it. Now, out it comes. I saw the illustration and I started laughing straight away because there it is. It's got big, fat, chunky forks, spoked wheels. Fantastic. But they were 17-inch fat wheels. They look like moto, super moto wheels. So that was fantastic. It looked great. Air-cooled engine. It looked like the engine from the Kawasaki Zephyr 1100 like a big block of flats, like an apartment block, this engine. It was massive. And the tank, again, here they went with their butch the dog thing, where the tank had big wide shoulders, narrow at the hips where the rider sat, tiny little tailpiece with that classic duck tail on the rear. It was perfect. It was like a Z900 from the 1970s that pumped up on steroids with four pipes. I mean, four rocket pipes facing the rear. That's just so, that's just Flash Gordon, isn't it? You know. So where it went, out comes the actual bike, and oh dear, oh dear, what a terrible letdown. It's a nice bike, but it's a bit ordinary. It's it's yeah. based around the Z1000, uh, I think it's based around, uh, I can't remember the exact model, but they've taken an old Kawasaki sports bike, they've used that engine, like a previous Kawasaki sports bike that's been... Ah, uh, okay. They've used an old engine, and it, it looks a bit like a Z9 if you squint. <laughs> <laughs> It's got tank, but 
they take the the original paintwork lines of the 70s the 1970s z9 and they kind of make it look like a z9 tank and the yeah. seat's massive you know they everybody's got fat these days the seats are bigger than they used to be so there we are it's a bit like the camaro you look at a camaro now that's not like a 70s camaro no not at all no not it's kind all. of a camaro if you squint and look the other way but it's not <laughs> Really. It's not really. No, so I think when the, when the live wire comes out, this is the the, the the kind of punchline of what I'm saying. When it hits the deck, I don't think it will be as impressive as it looks now, and it certainly won't be as expensive either. It will be a reasonably ordinary looking, slightly funky looking bike, a bit like the FXDL that bike that's come out now. That if you look at the concept pictures for that, it did look more muscular. The front end looked chunkier, and yeah. they've smoothed up. They take the, I mean. They argue when you challenge this kind of thing that concept illustrations are meant to be artistic. Well, no, I just want to know what it's going to look like. Yeah. I don't need artistic rubbish. Just show me what it's going to look like, and I'll buy it. And that's the point. That's that's the concept. So, for me, I hope they do bring out a nice looking live wire. I'll probably not be able to afford one. No, <laughs> certainly not me. That's for sure. Maybe but ten the, years down the line, the uh, the specs are okay. They're saying a hundred miles, uh, hundred mile range. Uh, uh, around town, uh, seventy mile range on the highway. Uh, it's it's got it's got it's got everything built into it. It's ABS traction control, and it actually even pairs with your phone with it, with, it, with an a- HD app. Really? That, yeah, they have a Harley Davidson. Harley, Harley so Davidson. Can, exactly. So you can you can monitor what your range is and how long your charge is going to last. Um, in details, you can tune it. Everything. But mind you, that that's something that's amazing. Yeah, you can physically alter the tuning of the bike with your phone mounted onto a dash. I mean, normally, this is where I think the TFT dash now that comes out on so many modern bikes. Right. That's where you're right. You're going to be able to detach that, take it with you, and that's your phone. So, yeah, we're all going down to this single one device. Yeah. Uh, as the RT want us to have. <laughs> uh, but it's but also it's, got uh, – they're also saying that this new uh, – the live wire is going to have uh, tracking devices in it so you can monitor where your bike is so if it if it were to get stolen yeah. you could find it you can actually well, track where it's going you know. but you can buy a tracker for for 150 pounds a battery operated one there's a company called monimoto uh that we profiled recently they make a, a, a it's about the size of a, a jumbo marker pen like oh yes yeah, i've seen that on your, on your show yeah, you simply deposit it somewhere secret on your bike and it app it to pair it to your phone and it's the same thing. Yeah. Mind you, they all work on GPS. So yeah, if it true. goes inside a Faraday cage, <laughs> i.e. a metal garage or a container, that's the worst thing, yeah. uh, a decent van with the doors closed, then all you're going to get is triangulation through the mobile phone network to where it last was. Yeah, but that's course, it. You know, it will pop up again um, and it will send out a signal for up to a month, I think. Um, but if you get a monitor tracker, a proper one, then they last forever, and uh, it calls the police as well, which is quite nice. <laughs> so, what else? What else do you have going on with your channel? Well, we're trying at the moment to introduce. I'm, I'm, I want to get back to riding. Uh, the projects have taken over somewhat, um, pushing the last six months to get that bike finished because I realised two years and a bit in that if this was rolling on a bit too long, and I probably need to finish it. But by that time, I was deep into clay and fiberglass and making the tail. So having spent nothing but project time for the last six to nine months, I want to get back on the road, uh, go to some shows, do some rides. And I want to meet people again. You know, we, 
we kind of haven't met up with viewers, gone to bike shows. It's great. You go to a big, busy bike show. You, I can meet 10 or 15 people, come over and say hi. They watch the videos, and we have great conversations. You make new friends, and that's yeah, fantastic. Yeah. So we miss that. I want to get out and about a bit. Um, we want to come to America at some point. We've got friends all over the USA. We've got some very special friends in Detroit. They live literally right in Detroit. They've been over here to England to see us three times, which wow. is embarrassing because we haven't been there once yet. We just can't find the time. The channel takes up 60 hours a week, uh, plus really? a day job. It takes up that yeah. much time. Well, no. I was in the garage this morning filming uh, the wheel spacer manufacturer and the lathe project I did for that. So that was at 9 o'clock this morning, finished at 5 p.m. Um, my time, came in, started editing, uh, stopped editing when you called, and it's now 11 p.m. our time now. So... 12, 14 hours today so far, and that's how it goes. I'll do the same again tomorrow. So there's 28 hours. So it's easy over the course of maybe four because each video takes a day to film and then roughly eight to 10 hours, so a day to edit. So two videos a week is four days, 60 hours a week, and I do a day wow. job. Too. So about 100 hours a week at the moment on my time. Um, I just, like I said, I need a 28-day week. <laughs> <laughs> But there we are. I wouldn't. I wouldn't do it if I didn't want to. I think, I, like I said, I want to get out more, get out on the bikes. There's no point in doing all this with bikes if you're never going to ride them. It's pointless. Um, and just enjoy the world we live in a little bit more. Make some new friends. That's yeah. pretty cool. Uh, and maybe one day I'd like to get a better place, a bigger place. I don't mean a row of sheds like we were talking about. That's just for fun. I mean a proper unit. It would be nice to get somewhere big enough to have the space to put all the bikes in. All of the machines, the lathe and the setup and the paintwork booth and, you know, all the fabricating equipment and a, and a couple of lifts to have a couple of projects going at the same time. If I had the space to run two projects at once, that gives us a little bit of variety in the channel, which yeah, I think is essential. Yeah. You know, one project nailing all the We see people unsubscribing when we start a Harley project. Really? And the curious thing is, yeah, you're all the guys who don't like Harleys because they don't handle, you know, the ones we spoke about yeah, them earlier. Yeah. I think the other side of it is when I bought this Harley and I put it on the bench, we had the most insane avalanche of people. We remember them all from about four years ago. They were subscribers back then. They all cut, oh, great, another Harley project. I've just resubscribed. So obviously <laughs> your audience will flow with what you're doing. So if we could find the space in a venue to put two projects two opposing genres on benches at the same time, a calf racer build going on over here, a Harley build over there, and perhaps a maintenance series going on further on. I'd like to do that too. I'm looking to try and get hold of, if I can, uh, a sports bike, a regular 750cc sport bike, something like a GSXR 750, something like that. Right. Uh, that's been laid up for a very long time. I do know of one, a very special one. It's been laid up for about five years. Um, in a museum situation, so it's not, derelict or anything but it hasn't been on the road for a very long time and that has an insane amount of d adverse effect on any bike you absolutely know, and it, all the rubber dries out all the bearings need replacing because they've sat in one position corroding themselves there for years and it just gradually goes back to nature so that would be a great series to run that you know a back to the road type th series where you can get a bike back on the road and show it so that when people see a bike for sale that's been off the road for two years, they're not so scared because it's not so difficult to actually fix them up. Right. Um, and all of the suppliers, we've got some crazy suppliers over here that can get you parts for anything. We can get brake pistons for a 1960s bike because the company that makes them, they just do the specification and machine them up. Oh, you know? there you go. 
the new old stock is long gone. You can't buy the originals, but you wouldn't want them anyway. It wouldn't be very nice after 40 years. So <laughs> freshly machined parts, we can get retro-made parts. Imagine how that would be for the car world. Imagine if you could take an old Corvette Stingray that's been laid in a barn for five years and do a video series restoring it to the road. Not restoring it in terms of making it look shiny and win shows, but just get it back out there as a daily user safe yeah so that everything works and that that is within the reach of the normal guy well i want to do that for a bike so that's a third idea so a couple of different projects on the go at one time and a third project so three lifts three bike benches and something different so every video alternates and hopefully that will keep the channel changing but it's all about the funding you know it sounds uh, to me like you need to move out into the country a little bit we live in the country. Have you not seen the ride videos we do? We live in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> well, in English terms, we do. I mean, there's nothing very far from you in England. But no, we, if we could find a place like that, yeah, it would work. But the problem is that rural properties in England are more expensive than town properties. Uh, yeah. Purely because everybody with a Range Rover wants to say they're country folk and get a black dog and live in the no- middle of nowhere. So. <laughs> Get, get sell some shotguns and go clay shooting and say that they're country folk. And that's the problem. So the properties out in the middle of nowhere are a lot of money. And industrial estates are okay, but there are certain rules about them. You need to pay business rates, and they're extremely yeah, yeah. expensive to run. They really are. I'd need to run it as a business then, and that would take me hugely away from the video side. I'd be having to think of customers and deadlines with customers, and suddenly your project has sat there for three weeks and you've not done a thing, and that would destroy everything we've built for eight years yeah wow well that's i can see it's getting late for you there i'm sure you want to hit hit the road or actually you're done for the night right hey now yeah hit the hay i'm up at uh seven o'clock tomorrow morning back on the editing i'll do editing till about midday and then i've got a late shift on the day job um which takes me to about one o'clock in the morning on the next day Wow. Round, round, round around it goes. Yeah. Now I'll, I'll be sitting here at my desk working tomorrow and that's it. And I'll probably won't hit the hay until midnight, 1230 or something like that. That's what I usually do anyway. Easy life. <laughs> Thank you so much for having us. Uh, I really, appreciate, I really appreciate you coming on and taking the time to talk with me again. That's great. Well, it's wonderful to be able to prattle on and talk rubbish with a good friend. It really is. I really Thank appreciate you. that. Appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Well, if you don't, if you, yes, yes. If you don't mind, I'm going to turn this into a, uh, an interview episode, if you don't mind. Please do. Yeah, you're welcome. I'd love to. If you can send us a link to it. Of course. I don't, know, I don't want to listen to myself too much. But, yeah, that'd be good. And let's do it again. Let's do a catch-up perhaps in a year's time. Let's let's keep in touch and once this project's on maybe the road. Not, maybe not so much further out like we did this last time, right? <laughs> not, don't wait four more years. No, please. no. <laughs> not at all. Call me. Call me. Right, there we go. All right, man. Take care, my friend. Take care of yourself and uh, good night to Miss Penny. <laughs> and you. God bless my friend. Take Bye-bye. care all. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for tuning in and listening to this episode 181 interview with Dell with Dell Boys Garage. Don't forget to go check out his YouTube channel at uh, Dell Boys Garage. Just look that up. You'll find it. A lot of great stuff there. You can look at his projects and what he's been up to. Uh, a lot of great stuff. So I definitely think you guys should really check him out if you haven't already. Don't forget to check out our fellow podcasters, YouTubers, bloggers, and vloggers out there whose links you will find on our links page. All of these media outlets and many more out there do great things to promote and encourage our sport and this passion we have. Also, don't forget to check out the Motorcycle Men YouTube channel. The new Ted Shed Build series is happening there as well. And uh, also our studio episodes and interview episodes are also being premiered there as well. 
Uh, so from Tim Buck 2, Chris the Joker, Justin Shoes, and me, Ted Wrongway, your host, thanks for listening to the Motorcycle Man Podcast, where we say stupid crap so you don't have to. Enjoy your ride, kids.